Investors Chronicle. Companies and Markets podcast. It is Thursday, the 2nd of February, as we record. And uh, Jennifer Johnson's back in the studio. Hi, Jen. Hey, how's it going? Very well. Good to have you here. Alex Newman, as normal. Hi, Alex. Hi, John. How are you? Also very good. Julian Hoffman. Hi, Julian. Hello there. John, UK. Yep, still fine. <laughs> and Dan Jones, as normal, coming up on today's show. John, how are you? No, uh, yeah, today we, uh, we have uh, lots of company news today. As usual, we're going to start by looking at Vodafone and its third quarter update. Then we are going to be discussing some management moves, which appear to have ticked up in frequency in recent weeks and months. And we are going to conclude with GSK, which had full year figures out a couple of days ago. Nice one. Uh, and a quick company's news as normal before we get there. Let's start with Shell. Um, Shell has made nearly $40 billion profit for 2022. That's a record for their calendar year, uh, beating their previous best $28 billion from 2008. The earnings are, of course, on the back of higher prices for hydrocarbons, caused in part by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and have led to renewed calls for higher taxation or windfall taxation on oil giants. In the US this week, ExxonMobil reported $56 billion profit for 2022 and Chevron made $37 billion. BP and France's Total Energies will report next week. Elsewhere today, we have news of continued rate hikes. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates 25 basis points in what has been described as a more cautiously optimistic outlook on US inflation. The Bank of England and European Central Bank will announce hikes shortly, both expected to be 50 basis points, and that will have already happened uh, for you, listener. Earlier in the week, news broke that supermarket chain Tesco has bought Paper Chase. The stationary retailer had fallen into administration for mere hours when Tesco swooped in for the chain's brand and intellectual property, but not for their 106 shops. Few gambling lines. Labbrooks and Coral owner Entain raised its cash profits forecast for 2022 to reflect record levels in the fourth quarter. Meanwhile, 888 shares fell 17% on the news of an internal compliance review showing failings in anti money laundering policies in the Middle East. The company suspended all VIP accounts in the region, and CEO Itai Pazna has been shown the door. And finally, Meta shares were boosted 20% after they announced a $40 billion buyback, and as market gave its blessing to their cost-cutting, Meta has laid off over 10% of their workforce during the quarter and expect full-year expenses to be around $10 billion lower than previously forecast. On with the rest of the show. Thanks, John. Yes, this week, uh, the magazine is our annual FTSE 350 review edition covering every company in the index. So we're discussing a range of them today, starting with Vodafone. Q3 update, so not a full set of figures, but nonetheless a relatively disappointing short update. Uh, the problems in Europe continue, as, we, as we've seen in the past few months, Vodafone and BT as well have struggled in terms of the amount of capex they need to spend in terms of inflationary issues. And in Vodafone's case, as I say, problems on the continent in particular, revenue growth Slowing and revenues falling in some cases. Uh, Julian, what were your thoughts on the update? Uh, yeah, I mean, predict predictably mediocre from uh, Vodafone, to be honest. <clears throat> I mean, the company is in a sort of rut where uh, no matter how much it buys, it always seems to overpay for it. 
and then it can't get the earnings growth at the end of the day. So it's it's an almost endless cycle of well, you know, we got the transformational deal, but you know, two years down the line, we're going to have to write off all the goodwill. And uh, you can almost predict that that's what's going to happen when you, we get to the the full year results itself. They'll probably have another goodwill write down, particularly of the um, European Liberty Global package they bought uh, in twenty twenty, um, because they're not seeing a lot of growth in Hungary. Uh, I think they had some some presence in Romania, which isn't, which isn't going anywhere uh, either. And uh, interestingly, they're also not doing particularly well in Germany, which is always their kind of core market. And uh, I mean, part of the reason for, for that, apparently, is that the Germans have reformed their system of mobile contracts so people can actually move around um, before you were sort of chattel to your, your mobile phone provider. And uh, you couldn't you couldn't just switch contracts very easily. So uh, the kind of churn effect that we have here in the UK seems to be exporting itself to the continent, which uh, <laughs> uh, might be the the one thing we are exporting, I, I think, these days to the continent. But um, yeah, so it, it's yeah, it's a predictable. It, it is, as from my point of view, at least from the point of view of the average investor, unless you buy Vodafone specifically for the dividend. It has almost no appeal. I think is the the fair summary of it. Yeah, and you mentioned the UK and uh, the, and also Europe. Obviously, there's competition issues in Europe as well. It's quite quite competitive markets there, which we kind of think the same about the UK to an extent. But actually, organic revenue growth in the UK was was fairly decent, despite these kind of hefty inflation. You know, not quite inflation plus, but inflation related price rises coming through. Uh, it's perhaps quite surprising with Vodafone and with BT today that there isn't more churn being seen given BT itself is putting through CPI plus increases as well. Well, I mean, there may just be some customer uh, inertia at the moment um, or or the fact that everybody's not offering deals that they're used to. I mean, that's the, that could be the other reason for it. I mean, the, the market has consolidated quite a lot and you do wonder whether there's an element of... Um, of uh yeah, price stickiness across the whole thing but um yeah i mean i, I mean i don't know I mean, it's yeah it always seems to me like the vodafone is is a collection of assets that could just be an investment trust i mean it, you know it doesn't seem to be a company that has a coherent ring or ring uh, to it or um or anything else i mean it's uh it, it just it doesn't have you know if they are going to make any and get any value out of it, even from the UK, I mean, it, it seems to me the only way to go forward is to downsize it quite considerably and just hand the cash back. Yeah. Well, yeah. On, on which note, you know, they do have a, a new chief executive in place, uh, Nick Reed having gone. His task was very much to do that downsizing, do that simplification, sell off some businesses, which he started to do. Uh, last year, you know, certainly some activists and some non-activist investors probably were uh disappointed that hadn't gone quicker we have the new chief exec now but there's not really so far much sign of a, a new strategy other than you know simplify and we can do better we'll, we'll come on to perhaps to to the new chief executive mantras shortly um but i suppose you know what what can they do to speed up that process it is a difficult question if you're not involved in the deals but you know do should we expect something completely different from the new chief exec or should we expect them to try and you know get the bit between their teeth simply in terms of disposals and there's been talk of a uk merger i think as well with three uk which which might help from a competitive perspective for vodafone if not for anyone else 
yeah, I mean, if they can get that past the regulators, I mean, that's mm. um, that's uh, the other question, is that I think, yeah, I mean, they he, the new chief does have to slim the company. I mean, there's no question that they've got too much. The reason they can't get any margin growth is that they just have a huge collection of different margins across different markets uh, with no real coherence. So, unless unless they've actually sorted out where the direction of the business is and how they're going to translate their actually quite decent free cash flow into you know more kind of profit growth uh, it's difficult to see how that that situation is going to change without relatively radical action i mean it could be a, a merger or it could be just uh, you know disposals I, I imagine that disposals will come before any kind of merger yeah and right now a lot of that free cash flow is being eaten up once again by capex and spectrum auctions and things like that although i think the most expensive those in the short term have passed but uh but the management question does bring us to the next section of the show which is discussing management changes in general as we said vodafone you know has just gone through that process there's been quite a lot of change just in the past week really uh 888 was mentioned at the top of the show which obviously is quite an idiosyncratic reason for the change there but we've also seen uh, lng uh, chief exec uh, announcing plans to step down unilever has brought in uh, it's new chief executive um, ahead of time. So, Julian, I suppose we'll start with you again. But the question here is, you know, what can we learn from shareholder reaction to these moves, perhaps, to begin with? You know, what kind of things should investors be looking for when a chief executive moves? Well, there's a nice comparison, really, because we had also what we did mention was the direct, uh, the direct line um chief executive was uh, stood down by mutual agreement in inverted commas and uh, the share price has gone up uh, since then about six percent um whereas uh, when sir nigel wilson stepped down from uh, legal and general the shares on the day i mean they dropped over three and a half percent at one point and uh, it kind of illustrates how how people view people's tenure i suppose or how investors view a tenure as successful or not uh, you know at the point that they move um, unfortunately, Alex Hamer um, vetoed my headline, um, uh, Direct Line Loses a Penny, because uh, she's, she's called Penny James. But um, the, Sadly, the history won't, won't record that great uh, headline. Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll live on in the podcast. Uh, yeah, so it, it, it can show, it, it does show you a sense of the regard that they're held in, but also the value that they brought to the company. So, you know, Nigel Wilson has, has returned something like 600% shareholders over like the 13 years he's been in charge uh, and has actually made LNG quite an interesting uh, insurer in, in the way that he's directed their investment strategy. So replacing replacing him is always going to be a harder task whoever comes afterwards, whereas the person who's going to take over eventually LNG, uh, sorry, a direct line, um, only really has to do a bit better for, for the shares to recover. So it's it's a difficult balancing act. I, I, don't, I really don't envy either of the, the people who have to take up those jobs. Mm. Well, I might just bring in Alex at this point because, you know, as you say, if, you know, if with a relatively bombed out share or certainly one going through difficult times like direct line, the expectation bar is quite low. Nonetheless, you do often see with the new chief exec, as so slightly with Vodafone this week, but particularly with Rolls-Royce, you do see the the kitchen sinking effect coming in where, uh, you know, it's very much an attempt to say, right, we're ripping things up, starting again. I mean, Rolls-Royce in particular seemed quite dramatic in terms of the, the comments they made, you know, describing the company as a burning platform. Every investment we make, we destroy value. 
you know, it seems like a very quintessential attempt to get all the bad news out of the way, or at least talk about all the bad news in an attempt to, to turn things around. But the question is really, is, is that enough? No, on its, on its own terms. Yeah, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's right. Um, and and uh, I'll probably get his, his pronunciation of his name wrong, Tufan Ergen Biljic, um, the new chief executive at, at Rolls-Royce, has a fairly fearsome reputation as a cost cutter and fits the profile of the turnaround specialist. I suppose um, investors have to think a little bit about the um, the cycles of CEO or management um, uh, success successor um, successor plans and how this often kind of plays out. So Rolls Royce will understandably say we've got to you know we've cha- we've we've shaken up the the top of the company. We need a bit of time for for their plan and for their understanding of the business to bed in um, and. Uh, that is a way of buying time, I suppose, in markets. But it's also a very familiar script. So just just saying, you know, everything is uh, is looking terrible and we need to rip things apart um, is quite a f- familiar refrain for a business like Rolls Royce, which you know fundamentally has some 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 things wrong with its business and the ability to change those those elements of some of the divisions is. Um, you know it's going to be a very very complicated task so the 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 way the way the the sort of ceo successor um uh, uh you know succession is stage managed by companies uh can sometimes be a little bit of a mask for you know the inability to to turn a to turn a company around so in the case of direct line i think that's just a, a slightly more simple case about how they get their underwriting um competitive and accurate um but yeah, with Rolls Royce, you know, you get the feeling this is kind of like a, a sort of Shakespearean drama, which sort of plays out um, every few years, and and uh, you know, you have to really take it with a pinch of salt. Which I think, as you pointed out, Dan, that the market reaction to to you know um, the new CEO's comments perhaps indicated that investors are getting a little bit more sceptical about you know. Yeah, they're waiting for some actual action. Actual, yeah, actual action, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well. Uh, we uh, one of the questions, in fact, in the IC Christmas quiz from uh, uh, last month or two months ago now, was uh, relating to the number of uh, FTSE 100 chief execs who either changed last year or there were changes announced. It was about 20, 25 percent, which is fairly high by recent year standards. I don't know if there's any thoughts among the uh, the team here about whether that's a random data point or a sign of you know post pandemic fatigue attempt to get out before the high interest rate era really takes hold or just a sign that there are some sclerotic companies that need that need big change and, and need a, an external or a change of leadership to to enact that yeah i wonder i wonder if any of them are going watford down going down a league um well without getting bogged down on football watford do have an incredible record for changing manager every five minutes so uh indeed <laughs> maybe maybe they will go there I mean, I, I was going to say, I mean, you know, the the sort of great retirement narrative that we've seen over the last couple of years, um, and the level of economy. I think we shouldn't discount how CEOs, you know, are ultimately people as well, and in in very often very high stressed jobs and environments, and they've gone through, like as we all have, very you know, sort of weird few years. Um, I th- you know, it's tempting to draw, it's tempting to draw trends out of you know what amounts to a few dozen 
jobs and uh, and you know you could equally draw the trend if, I was just looking at some some of the news reports from the last few months as to you know the Disney CEO being reinstated um, uh, and and I think Target and Boeing in the US as well they all had sort of CEOs who had seemed to step away and then you know come back so you, c- you can sort of draw out lots of different narratives that um, you know that either successions or departures seem to represent but yeah I mean you can't discount the, I suppose, the effects of the last few years on on these, you know, very stressful jobs, and you know, the options before chief executives to just move into slightly more cosy consultant positions and and not have the scrutiny of the world bearing down on them. I noticed, I noticed from the stats actually that the uh, the average tenure increased over the course of the pandemic. So there was clearly a a sticking effect, wasn't there? When you know they felt that they couldn't step down in the middle of this massive crisis. And um, I mean, you, you must be, you, you know, burnout must be an issue if you're, if you're running a company under those circumstances. And then, you know, and then there's a massive war you have to deal with <laughs> afterwards. I mean, Dan, you mentioned um, uh, Nigel Wilson stepping down from, from, uh, and, and Julian stepping down from LNG. But I mean, I think there's a sort of chart for the, 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 the 16 FTSE 100 bosses who have served for at least 10 years um, at the end of the year, and and since then, several more have um, announced their departure. So, the, the United Utilities boss is stepping down. Um, Ditto Halma, which is like a terrific, um, in, uh, you know, uh, success story. HomeServe was taken private. So, you know, in, in different sense, they're they're departing. But um, yeah, there is a little bit of a turnover of of the most, uh, you know, of the of the longest serving uh, sort of corporate leaders. So, yeah. We'll see. We'll see if that trend sort of increases or or extends. They can at least bed down on their piles of money in the, in the meantime <laughs> while they step back. But uh, the the final thing I want to talk about on uh, CEOs before we move is just very briefly the the split between sort of internal promotions and external chief execs, which again sometimes is a when you have a company perceived to be a big, you know, maybe even a super tanker needs turning around. Sometimes a fresh pair of eyes from the outside is what investors want. Some stats from 2021 where, in fact, though, two-thirds of uh, chief execs in the FTSE 100 were appointed through internal promotion, uh, which is up from 45% a couple of years before. So internal promotion seemed to be more common. That said, this week with Unilever, there was quite a lot of investor clamour for an external appointment, and they got one, albeit it was a uh, the chief exec of, a, I think, a Dutch dairy cooperative who no one quite knew about. So, um, you know, an external uh, name isn't always required. There is, in fact, quite a glowing profile of a Hein Schumacher's name in uh, the FT today. I think Nelson Peltz, the uh, the activist on Unilever's board, is quite a fan as well. So maybe he will he'll do good things there. But, yeah, sometimes that external impetus might be needed as well. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a hard one to say. I mean, in you would you would say a company which has done is done very well and might have uh, complicated sort of in, internal systems and, and controls. Uh, the appointment of an internal candidate there might be a good thing. You know, or, or, you know, there's a lot of um, there's not a f- sort of knowledge within within businesses, which it, it you know can take a lot a long time to come up to speed on. Um, but I suppose every sector, every business is a little bit a little bit different. If you've got a you know someone who takes a fresh approach or has done something very well in a, in a in a sort of parallel industry, there you know in the case of Unilever, it sounds like that's the um, that's why the positive reaction uh, is there. But you know, if you were, if you were, 
you know, if, if you were looking at, a, a, you know, perhaps one of the, the fangs, you know, there some of their some of their internal um, processes and uh, investments might lend itself to to internal, you know, candidates. But also, companies don't and boardrooms don't want to see, see be seen to be being stale in just promoting its own. And you know, the idea that you're you're bringing in fresh talent, fresh ideas, always sells probably a little bit better than um uh, than internal promotions. So. It depends. It depends on the industry, though, isn't it, Alex? Because I don't think you could imagine a complete outsider taking over LNG with no insurance underwriting experience. I mean, that that's a highly technical. <laughs> it's, it's such branch. a yeah. It's such a specific beast. But I, I suppose there are as, other asset managers or life insurers out there which um, uh, you could in theory recruit from um, at the risk of overpaying if you're going to take it take some from one of the top echelons of a of a rival but yeah it's good it's a good point i mean there's there's so much that some of these uh, ceos have to have a grasp of um that sometimes being being a company uh person is you know it is probably a safe bet i mean, i reckon that um like if we go back to direct line i reckon they would probably benefit from having someone like stephen hester come in because he did quite a good job at royal sun after um uh, yeah, again, basically being asked to leave uh, uh, RBS after completing a five-year term. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I saw someone with a turnaround background would probably work in that context, even if he's not specifically a someone like him is not specifically a, uh, an insurance specialist. But uh, yeah, good thought, Stephen. If you're listening, send your CV in. Yeah. Well, we come to our final section now, uh, and we are talking about another company which. Is in the middle of a potentially a slow turnaround. Its chief executive, uh, Emma Walmsley, is still in place. Although, talking about experience, I think Elliot, the uh, another activist investor, has, has previously called on them to uh, um, consider whether she's the right person, given she doesn't have a science background. But anyway, GSK is where it is. Halion has been spun off. Full year results this week. Relatively good. Uh, ahead of expectations on a couple of uh, um, data points. Uh is the turnaround beginning? Is it underway? Jen, what's your view? Um, I think there is some evidence that there is a turnaround um, underway. Whether it's quite as fast as investors are hoping uh, is another matter. Um, so this kind of new face of GSK that, that we've got is very much focused on um, you know, the pharma and, and vaccine segment especially. Uh, it's kind of top product really for the year um, in terms of growth was it Shingrix shingles vaccine um, it's got a very strong HIV drugs franchise also um, which is going to kind of be set to be a, a pretty strong revenue driver for the next couple of years um, and it's got a vaccine for RSV uh, coming out or being going into regulatory approval this year um, and though that has some competitors in the form of Pfizer and Moderna, um, it's still a pretty significant untapped market. So I think if you're kind of a glass half full sort of person, um, GSK is moving in the right direction. Um, if you are not, um, and it seems that markets are, are rather a, a kind of glass half empty view uh, on GSK's results as the share price didn't really move, um, yeah, there are still a few reasons uh, to be wary of the company and its pipeline. Yeah, I think they said, uh, you know, set on delivering growth from 2026, which is, you know, still 
a while away, even though markets are obviously a discounting mechanism and look far into the future, that might be a little bit too far at the moment for some for some people. Um, and and yeah, as you say, the the share price reaction w- was fairly muted, but there are other considerations there as well. You know, perhaps Zantac, the the potential litigation there, on which there has been some good news, but it's still a bit of a overhang for the shares. Yeah, it's definitely a bit of an unknown quantity and there is a bellwether trial set to begin um, later this month. Um, And there was, there is kind of, the legal decisions that have been made thus far have um, found that there was no link with Zantac, this heartburn drug and cancer, but that doesn't mean, you know, there are something like 3,000 cases that have been that are going to go through the the courts. Um, Yeah, Yeah, I should have said this, obviously, the historic drug I say historic, on which there are a number of legal cases pending regarding the possible link between uh, the medication, which is for heartburn and cancer. As you say, the first few of those, or first several, have been thrown out, but there's more to come. Yes, so there are a total of 3,000 personal injury cases that kind of allege that Zantac is linked to the development of various cancers. So this is something that's still um, going to take a little bit of a while to play out. I also think we can't disregard the fact that investors have long term been concerned about GSK's pipeline, whether it's as robust a pipeline as um, other pharma rivals um, and whether it has, you know, kind of potential blockbuster drugs uh, to replace drugs that are going to lose patent exclusivity. So uh, there's a key HIV molecule uh, that's found in four of GSK's best-selling HIV drugs that is going to go off patent in four years' time in 2027. So the company is under a bit of time pressure um, to turn things around and really ensure that it's um, it has this kind of robust pipeline that will deliver for investors in the latter part of the decade. And the other thing uh, we should discuss with GSK, uh, another story that's been in the news, is the, um, the NHS rebate situation which uh, caused a bit of headlines a few weeks ago with a couple of uh, U.S. pharmaceuticals effectively pulling out of that agreement or, or uh, you know, they're still involved in the U.K., but they're not involved in that rebate system anymore. GSK and AstraZeneca supposedly have written to uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, along with another, a number of other companies, to talk about this NHS levy, which effectively is designed to ensure that uh, drug companies pay rebates on the sale of their branded medicines if the NHS's overall spending for medicines rises by more than 2% a year, which in recent years, for obvious reasons, it has been doing. But these rebates are getting particularly high now. I think um, the clawback rate is currently you know, in the 20% level and it's going to rise again next year. So, yes. so these manufacturers are, are kicking up a bit of a fuss. Yeah, and it's definitely closer to 30 than 20 now. So... No matter what, if you are in the voluntary scheme or if you are then then pull out of the voluntary scheme and you are in the statutory scheme, you're still um, having to pay a, a much higher rate, uh, much higher rebate rate to the NHS. Um, and the argument is that this stifles innovation uh, in the UK and companies have kind of said uh, in this sort of thinly veiled way, um, you know, nice nice country you've got there wouldn't it be a shame if we had to stop doing business there um is kind of the the gist of the argument just because the pharma companies feel that this clawback payment is far too onerous um but obviously you have a lot of sick people uh in this country at the moment because of nhs backlogs covid etc uh and people who need these branded drugs so i don't again this is another thing for gsk that probably isn't going to resolve overnight and also 
uh, the UK companies in particular have to tread fairly carefully. You don't want to be seen as sort of bashing the NHS or, um, you know, talking about um, leaving the UK in some capacity or taking your business elsewhere, um, whereas the US companies can... Um, sort of just up and leave carte blanche um as two of them have done so again ongoing situation we'll see what happens and um it would be interesting to know exactly how and i don't have the numbers for this but it would be interesting to know exactly how uh this clawback system is going to affect their bottom lines yeah i think that's something we'll be looking into the other aspect of it is you know these as far as my understanding goes which is perhaps relatively limited but but these costs as well, they exclude the costs, well, the NHS costs involved, which are used as a barometer. They exclude the prices of innovative drugs, which uh, have been a decent money spinner for pharmaceuticals and probably going to be more so. Uh, but once, if those are excluded from the main cost, I think the suggestion is that they mean that overall NHS costs go up, which means that the clawback on the rest of it is higher. So as they find these more innovative, more expensive drugs and the NHS pays for them, that is also going to lead to a higher clawback rate. So it's a bit of a, you know, give with one hand, take with the other situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Julian, what are your thoughts on uh, GSK in general? Yeah, I mean, GSK, is, it, it is a fundamentally interesting case about uh, the strategy and where they're going at the moment. And uh, as we said before, 2026 is quite a long time to say, OK, well, we'll, we'll expect growth at, in that time. But it's also worth investors worth, worth remembering that the wheels of pharmaceuticals to turn very very slowly um and a lot of that the reason for that is because they're they reliant on regulators making decisions uh the, yeah the, the nhs example is a classic uh, uh a, a classic scenario for that uh and yeah it, it's just a question of patience i think rather than um you know you know, just saying that they're never going to get anywhere. I mean, they've definitely done the hard work in getting rid of Halion because I think that fundamentally held them back as a company. Um, and if they can get two or three decent products through the pipelines in the next couple of years, then the impact on EPS is exponentially very high, even with reference pricing in, in the UK. But, uh, I mean, they've always hated the NHS, I mean, as far as I can remember writing about them, uh, I mean, not GSK specifically, but the pharma industry in general, because uh, yeah, it's such a big service. They buy a lot of drugs. Uh, and also the prices they set uh, are copied in other countries as well. So they, they often become the reference price for, for the entire industry, uh, which is one reason why they're kicking up so, such a fuss about it. Well, you can find more on GSK and, in fact, on every single company we've mentioned uh, in the magazine this week because it is our annual FTSE 350 issue covering every non-investment trust company in the index. So look out for that and the accompanying supplement. But that does bring us to the end of today's show. So thank you to Julian, to Jen, to Alex and to John. And thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Market Show.